Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent in Westminster. And I'm Colin Mulmungain, RTE's deputy foreign editor, normally in Dublin but at home in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. This week, Boris Johnson wants a tiger in the tank, but the EU doesn't want a pig in a poke. We'll decipher the strange colloquialism table tennis both sides engaged in this week after the so-called high-level conference between Johnson and the leaders of the three main EU institutions. Amid the ongoing disarray in the UK over how to manage the coronavirus pandemic, we'll look at how the prospect of another big Brexit upheaval at the end of the year is going down. With Michael Gove getting a grilling before the Northern Ireland Select Committee, we'll assess how the implementation of the Irish Protocol is going down and take stock of yet another looming clash between the EU and the UK over the issue of extraditing British citizens to the EU after Brexit. But first, Tony, EU leaders have been meeting virtually on the COVID recovery fund today. Brexit doesn't jump out at us from that, but is there a Brexit angle? And if so, what is it? Yeah, there's a couple of Brexit angles, Colm. First of all, the leader of the leaders of the Commission and the Council, Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel, respectively, were due to brief leaders on that meeting on Monday between with Boris Johnson and the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar was also due to brief leaders on how the Northern Ireland Protocol is being implemented. But uh, most of the meeting was being taken up by the recovery fund uh, and how that's going down. We don't need to get into major detail on that, but uh, effectively 750 billion euro that the European Commission will borrow on the international markets. And then that'll be divided up into loans and grants and given to the worst affected countries. Um, And there's a big debate over uh, whether you should have more loans or more grants. And we've had the the Frugal Four, the Netherlands, Sweden, uh, Austria and Denmark saying, uh, let's make it loans, not grants. Um, But the Brexit angle from an Irish point of view is interesting. the, the whole question of what this fund should be used for and the fact that, well, the coronavirus was a big unexpected shock. Another uh, expected shock, of course, is going to be Brexit. And uh, the Irish government is going to be pushing to see if the Brexit effect at the end of this year, whether there's a deal or whether there isn't a deal, uh, you know, that, that, that'll be an asymmetric shock for Ireland. Uh, and also Belgium is pushing for money uh, as well for Brexit. So essentially trying to get money out of the COVID recovery fund uh, for the, the the effect of Brexit. Um, so that's a negotiation right. that the Irish government will be pushing for, for a while. Do we know what the Netherlands is saying on it? Because they've been frugal and they don't want more spending, but they are heavily affected by Brexit. So it would be rather ironic if they're trying to reduce the amount of spending that's going on by the European Union, but also seeking to benefit. Um, they haven't said specifically yet on on the Brexit angle, but they they do have concerns about the way the European Commission is uh, using a mechanism to figure out who should get what uh, out of the 750 billion euro fund. And Ireland also has has those concerns. Uh, the Commission is using what's called an allocation key, which is a way of calculating where the worst affected countries are, you know, which countries had the, the least fiscal headroom to cope with this big economic shock. And the Irish government's concern is that this allocation key is backward looking. So it takes a snapshot of the Irish economy 
back in around 2015, 2016, when uh, you know the economy was booming. So that therefore doesn't accurately reflect the real impact of the coronavirus pandemic on Ireland. Uh, so I think quite a few countries are unhappy with the um, the allocation key or this methodology that the European Commission is using. But the trouble is, if you if you start to throw that methodology out, you know, what do you replace it with? And the risk then is you've got a whole Pandora's box and, and a zero sum game with everybody looking for a methodology that suits them uh, and not necessarily those countries that, that are worst affected. Right. Well, let's go over to London now. Sean, how are you? How's the eyesight? Have you been out checking it recently? And the I guess I, I have been out checking it recently, taking one of these little zip cars um, around uh, the suburbs uh, for a small jaunt. And I can tell you my eyesight is working perfectly well. Um, can't say the same about my, uh, my teeth. I did have a bit of toothache last week. That's why you weren't hearing from me on the podcast. Um, You're welcome uh, back anyway. Thank you. Difficult to yeah. find a dentist in this uh, town in these corona-driven uh, days. Apparently, there were only four on duty for the whole of London last week. Uh, but never mind. Um, we can correct the lyrics of the song. The drugs do work. They just take a bit of time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, Anyway, here we are back in the saddle just in time for uh, another eruption of uh, Brexitism uh, in the Parliament uh, with various committees and various meetings, including um, that uh, much talked of, but in the end, um, not much happening uh, or not much emerging from it. Uh, video conference between the uh, trio of EU leaderships uh, and Boris Johnson uh, on Monday and uh, fairly short uh, announcement followed from that. Uh, nobody was expecting terribly much. Um, but then again, um, the British seem to be uh, briefing over here now that because everything went off rather smoothly and the EU didn't try to spin the outcome of the meeting, uh, that these uh, in itself is grounds for optimism, uh, that and the acceptance of uh, the idea of having a more intensive phase of face-to-face -face meetings uh, between negotiating teams from the EU uh, and the British side uh, over the next uh, month or two months uh, to try and see how much progress they can make on, uh, on getting a, a trade deal at the very sure. least together, whatever about the other parts. And when you say grounds from optimism, obviously that means different things to different people in the UK. For some, it will mean a compromise by Boris Johnson and a softer approach and, and more of an inclination to, towards deal making. For others, optimism is Boris sticking it to the Europeans with a hard nosed attitude. So what's the briefing coming out of Downing Street? To what effect is it? Well, it's coming out from both sides of the mouth, as it expect to try and keep everybody happy that uh, yes, of course, we're standing up to these beastly continentals. But uh, on the other hand, well, of course, everybody has to make compromises in order to get uh, a deal across the line uh, at the end of the day. Uh, and it's a question of which audience you're trying to speak to, I guess, as to which of those uh, is being emphasised. Um, obviously, with the um, hardcore of the uh, Brexiters, uh, you have to be seen to be hard and be talking hard um, for other people you have to be seen to be floating at the very least uh, some areas of, of compromise or looking for uh, middle grounds between two uh, fairly hardline approaches from uh, London and Brussels, or at least the public diplomacy uh, that has been talked of. Well, before we go to Tony, Sean, how was it reported last week? Because uh, one of the things that we were discussing last week was the UK's desire to get into a tunnel and to advance the negotiations at some speed without any interference from domestic audience being wound up by partisan briefings to the press and all of that. In the end, there was no tunnel. 
was that even reported on? Was it reported on as a setback for the UK side or did it simply pass under the radar with all that's going on with coronavirus at the moment? No, I mean, a lot of stuff does get lost. And frankly, a lot of people are, are just um, not interested in, in Brexit right now. They do have bigger fish to fry there. We mentioned the F word. Uh, but yeah, Brexit issues tend to, to float by in the general public and you don't get that uh, political head of steam up either, partly because uh, of the way the parliament is operating, but mostly simply because uh, COVID is dominating pretty much everything uh, and every agenda out there. So Brexit has moved um, not quite to the margins of debate here, uh, but is uh, certainly well down the agenda uh, of, of things that are being talked about. I mean, in terms of the... Uh, positive uh, slant that has been uh, taken from uh, Monday's meeting in particular. Um, it's They're fastening on two things uh, that uh, the EU side uh, don't uh, or do accept that the British don't want to have an extension of the negotiating period. So everything finishes on the 31st of uh, December. The transition period ends then and we move on to whatever we move on to uh, regardless of anything. Uh, and they, uh, again, in uh, the spin, which has, has come out quite um, strongly, or rather the interpretation, let's be generous here, uh, in a piece that came out in the last couple of days in the Spectator magazine, which is getting uh, a certain amount of attention, uh, is that uh, now that the um, EU side have finally believed uh, that there isn't going to be any extension um, to the process, that that is starting to unlock uh, things on the EU side and right. uh, loosen things up a little bit uh, on the EU side. Uh, and as a result of this, the, um, to quote from the spectator, the British side is privately far more optimistic than it has been at any previous point in the negotiations, uh, unquote, um, not because of any great breakthrough then, but just because of a few straws in the wind, uh, one of them being uh, that issue of the uh, the no extension. Also, uh, it says in this uh, Spectator article, uh, things like uh, the DUP's worries about the Belfast office, which the uh, EU were insisting on, they're saying um, those worries are dissipating because uh, apparently the uh, request from the EU has been quietly dropped, according to one uh, Northern Ireland source uh, that uh, spoke to the Spectator. I uh, don't know whether that's entirely the case or not, uh, but that is, is what they're saying right. here. And also, when the real interest point from this article was to put uh, more widely into the public domain uh, an idea for uh, getting around one of the issues which has been talked of an awful lot, uh, especially on this um, podcast, which is the level playing field issues, uh, which is to uh, attempt to use one of the uh, solutions for the Northern Ireland issue, the Northern Ireland Protocol, as a way of getting around the uh, issue of the level playing field, where the EU insists on level playing field uh, commitments and the British are absolutely opposed to having any commitments to level playing field. The solution is to uh, go into the, uh, a kind of a middle ground there and say that Britain would retain the sovereign right to walk away from any of the level playing field com commitments, but would uh, basically carry on uh, with things as they are at the moment, uh, in, in the knowledge that if it did walk away from any of the level playing field commitments, the EU would have the right to impose tariffs uh, and any other sanctions uh, that would be necessary uh, at that point. Uh, and that that, they think, because of its parallels with the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, would be a way of getting over that particular hump. Now, of course, there's plenty of uh, objections that will be thrown up uh, around that. 
uh, particularly in terms of the governance of it. And also, as we've seen, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, was a way of getting over that hump at that particular time. But now here we are many months later and we're still searching around for details about how it uh, precisely works with a clock ticking down uh, towards a very hard deadline there. Nevertheless, it is a, a, an easing of the position. Now, when this was teased out on uh, Trade Nerd Twitter, uh, people pointed to uh, an earlier version of this, apparently buried away in the EU's own uh, negotiating text that it published back in March, this, this very lengthy document, which apparently there raised the prospects of the EU being able to impose tariffs uh, and other sanctions for departures from level playing field issues. So in a res some respect, the legal work has been done on that already. And also in May, there was a, a document uh, published on the LSE's website by a, a law firm here in London, suggesting a fiendishly complicated uh, way of uh, dealing with this level playing field issue uh, and adding all kinds of governance uh, techniques and committees and non-binding arbitrations, etc. So convoluted and, and fiendishly complex that I can't remember most of it, but it, it's there for anybody who, who wants to read it uh, on the LSE's uh, blog. Um, it would divert an awful lot of ordinary people uh, or trap them in the quicksands of, of the uh, complexity of it. And that's probably uh, a diplomatically useful thing when you're trying to find a fudgy type uh, agreement uh, between these two hard positions, if indeed that's what you're after. Right. Tony, you're no stranger to trade nerd Twitter. <laughs> give us give us what the reaction has been in Brussels, first of all, to some of what's emerging in the UK, if, if, if they've bothered to respond at this stage, uh, and also some of these novel solutions that are being proposed, if, if at all, if they are indeed novel, as, as Sean's saying, there's a bit of history there, it seems. I think, first of all, there has been a very swift uh, rejection of this idea for, that was floated in the spectator because the whole essence of the EU's uh, ambition in the future relationship and in the level playing field area is that you have something that is solid, uh, strong and stable, something that will last the test of time because they don't want to be having a dispute with the UK every two or three months. Uh, over some level playing field. We say. Exactly. I mean, they, they just want something that uh, will work and that both sides are signed up to and both sides know what the rules of the game are um, and that it's legally binding uh, through this free trade agreement, which will be an international treaty. Just on the meeting last week, there, there was quite a lengthy briefing um, by, by the EU side to, to a group of journalists, uh, myself included, which I was kind of surprised uh, in a sense they, there, there was a fairly pragmatic approach. Overall, they were saying that, look, the negotiations have got nowhere so far, uh, but both sides have reaffirmed their commitment both to getting an agreement and to the political declaration, which, as we know, has been a bit of a sticking point between both sides. Um, that, and the whole idea of the transition being extended, to be frank, the EU gave up on that a long time ago. I mean, I'd say it was around the early part of the pandemic when people thought that the UK was bound to seek an extension because the whole world seemed to be collapsing and how could you possibly have a free trade agreement negotiation in, in, those, uh, in that situation? But, you know, going back, I'd say six weeks, I think people were mm. 
reading the messages from the UK and taking them at their word that there was definitely not going to be an extension uh, to the transition. Do they necessarily uh, see that as a, as a disadvantage? Because the last time Boris Johnson was backed into a corner with the, the sands of time running out, there was a compromise. I mean, are the EU fairly sanguine about the idea that they're not asking for an extension because they may see there may be, could be pressure for additional compromise closer to the deadline and the request for a tunnel might be indicative that that pressure has been felt. There is certainly a belief in the EU and in the institutions here and you know people who are fairly close to the negotiations that the UK is desperate to avoid a a cliff edge uh, or as one diplomat put to me uh, being backed into a corner at a cliff edge <laughs> so <laughs> mixing metaphors royally um and and because it went it 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 ended quite badly for them last year with the withdrawal agreement you know, Boris Johnson signed up to something very quickly and i think Downing Street was aware that this would have knock on effects in in due course with the Northern Ireland Protocol, which of course we can see that uh, happening. So I, I think that's why people here can see through this request by the UK to have a tunnel in July. Immediately after the conference last week or on Monday, Boris Johnson came out and said a deal could be done in July if we put a tiger in the tank, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, there is no way that the EU is going to accept that particular approach at this stage. They are completely tied up with the uh, recovery fund, with the seven-year budget. Um, the German presidency takes over on the 1st of July, and they've, the Germans so have made it quite clear that... Uh, was it kind of tea and sympathy? And what happened well, on Monday? What, you, I, th I think it was... There the, is no tunnel and no advance and no compromise so far. It was, it was just a, a box-ticking exercise of something that was in the calendar. Well, I think it was a clearing of the air and a, and a bit of honesty. Now, like what we were told was things haven't gone anywhere so far, but we both want a deal. It's in our interest to get a deal. So the two chief negotiators, Michelle Barnier and David Frost, are just going to have to work at this. I mean, quite a few times the, the, the person giving the briefing said, uh, Think back to the Irish protocol. Think of how difficult the Irish question was over a three-year period. People said it could never be done, but guess what? A way was found at the end. Now, obviously, a way was found that was pretty close to the uh, EU's original idea for Northern Ireland. Uh, but anyway, it, it got over the line. So they're saying, look, we just have to get creative. We, you know, the, Frost and and uh, and Barnier will have to get into the room on a Monday morning. Uh, figure out what they're going to do that week. Uh, should they have 35 meetings? Should they have 50 meetings? Uh, they just have to find a way to, to, to make this work, to translate the commitment that both sides are making into a deal. Uh, but having said that, they were pretty adamant that the EU was not going to move on its principles on the level playing field, on state aid, on the governance issue. In other words, how do you resolve disputes if there's anything which... Uh, relates to EU law. Only the European Court of Justice can interpret that. Um, uh, on fisheries as well, I think the EU is probably going to have to move a bit on that front. Um, but they were saying, look, we have to get this done, but we're not necessarily budging first. Right. Well, just, you know, and if Sean could come in on this as well. If the UK wants Canada, is the best way of achieving Canada to go for no deal at the end of the year and then come back negotiating from outside the door? And despite the 
short-term disruption or indeed possibly long and medium-term disruption that that would cause, that's the only way you're going to get Canada because you're then at a point of divergence. You're at the point of tariffs and WTO, and then you're talking about what to reduce. Well, I mean, the, the EU, uh, sorry, the UK initially talked about a Canada-style free trade agreement, but in, in reality, what they're looking for is is much closer than Canada. I mean, they're looking for zero tariffs and zero quotas. They're looking for a much more generous regime in terms of services, uh, in terms of financial services, in terms of uh, you know mutual recognition of qualifications, in terms of mutual recognition of how you certify products that will be then able to be sold in the EU uh, and vice versa. Um, so they are, they're, they're actually looking for, for something that is uh, much closer to what they have at the moment. Um, you know, it, but having said that, uh, at a certain point recently, Michael Gove said, well, we really can't accept a level playing field because that's uh, an infringement of our sovereignty. So why not go back to the Canada model? Because the Canadians uh, do pay some tariffs. We're happy to take the hit on tariffs if it gets us off the hook for a level playing field. The EU's response to that is, well, in that case, then we, we get into this line by line negotiation on you know, what goods get tariffs, what don't get tariffs, what should they be? You know, if you have a tariff on butter, uh, is, is there a concession somewhere else? And that kind of negotiation takes forever uh, and it, it certainly wouldn't be done by the end of the year. Right, yeah, the timing, the timing issue uh, is, uh, I think, important. And uh, I think you're right. The British interest is to get something done as soon as possible. And I think Boris Johnson probably betrayed his anxiety when he used the J word July uh, in those briefings. Uh, it had been reported elsewhere that uh, he hadn't mentioned July in the teleconference uh, with the EU side. But certainly the British want to get this wrapped up the earlier, the better and try and get it squared away because the longer this goes, the uh, less propitious the background noise is. Not only are you, uh, to use that great metaphor, being backed into a corner on a cliff edge, uh, but you've also got the economic fallout from uh, the COVID crisis, which will be manifesting itself a lot more clearly come the autumn when a lot of these government uh, aid schemes uh, are stopped. And at that point, and it's creating quite a bit of fractures is, within the British government as well. Yes, it that, is. That, 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 just the that whole in management itself of is it. an internal problem. It, it's an internal problem, and it's an internal problem for all the countries. But again, here in Britain, uh, they haven't fared as well as uh, a lot of other countries uh, in Europe when it comes to their management uh, of the COVID crisis. So you are getting a cumulative uh, political problem building up as a result of the management or mismanagement of uh, aspects of the corona crisis here. You've got the economic hit that is going to hit everybody, uh, but is going to, to really start kicking in uh, come the autumn when the redundancies start to roll out uh, pretty big time. The country is taking on huge debts. It's already gone through 100% debt GDP uh, by this morning's figures. Uh, so the borrowing levels are going to be rising all of the time. That just is going to be unsettling people. And then to be facing into uh, another Brexit cliff edge with all of that other political background going on, uh, it really does look like uh, an awful lot of uh, political pressure coming on at a very, very specific time. And we had that briefing from the uh, the German perm rep as they're taking over the EU presidency shortly. And they are saying, look, six weeks of concentrated political effort in September and October 
uh, that's what we're going to be uh, focusing on. So if the EU side, uh, particularly the, the Germans who look fairly crucial to this now, uh, are saying it's September is when we're going to be bringing our attentions to this, that's probably the time that is uh, politically less opportune for Boris Johnson, uh, and that in turn makes it more politically opportune uh, for the European mm. Union yeah. to pile in the pressure uh, at that point. And also remember the, the other cards in the hand that are, are still out there, the uh, equivalence rulings on services, uh, which are big for the British economy and data flows, which are related to that. Uh, these are two things that you know, even if you defaulted back to WTO <laughs> rules, you have got those I'm big, big issues. Uh, the unresolved there. And then there's all of the other uh, things that are floating around uh, with the Justice and Home Affairs access as well. So uh, okay. there's a lot do of you, stuff to be sorted. Do you mind me asking a lot of at this time. point, why is anyone talking about optimism then? <laughs> well, I, I, I think, I, you know, I think they, they, they have to, you know, because nobody yeah. wants to throw in the towel uh, in the middle of the year. Um, and I think genuinely, uh, you know, the, the EU side, uh, uh, inferred from Boris Johnson's remarks on Monday that uh, he knows that both sides will have to move. He knows that an agreement isn't going to come out of the sky uh, and that probably the UK will have to move further than the EU side, uh, but also that the EU um, knows that it'll have to move as well. And as, as the person briefing us on Monday said, you know, compromise is not a dirty word uh, in Europe. Uh, it's something we do every day, uh, but we're not going to move on our principles. And again, state aid, that's extremely important. That will go right down to the wire. The level playing field overall on labor, uh, labor rules, social rules, uh, the environment, climate change, right. taxation. So compromise is not issues. a dirty word as long as the other guy is doing the compromising. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. It's like Henry Ford and the colour of the car. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I think just, I think deep down both sides believe that a deal is better than no deal. Uh, but, you know, they're not um, naive either. And the, the whole no deal preparation is being taken out of the drawer and dusted down. And we're getting, uh, you know, signals and uh, warnings coming from the commission that member states have to revive those uh, preparations. Mm. Right. We're to, also to come, getting come... that here uh, in, in the UK. And apparently we're being promised a shock and awe advertising campaign for the autumn to uh, scare firms into uh, doing uh, what they need to do to be ready for the new regime, but we also Project know that the fear, new regime surely not. Uh, surely not. But we also know that the new regime isn't going to be ready because Mr. Gove admitted as much uh, a few days ago with this uh, what they're calling a, a soft phase in of the customs uh, regime uh, in the first six months of next year. In other words, it won't be ready to go on the 1st of January because they haven't built the customs posts and they haven't built the customs computer infrastructure and, and all the things we've They don't have the, the people past. either. They don't have the people, most particularly they don't have the people. And it's even for the private sector, customs clearance, form filling people, it's really hard to train them yeah. because you can't get people together because of the COVID. So and, and, and know, plus the, the reality of, of it people, is- You're not gonna be employing European vets presumably because the whole purpose of this Brexit thing is that people don't come in from Europe on the nod. I mean, you can employ them if you want, but if you need the vets at your at your ports and, and the like for the phytosanitary checks, you're going to have to supply them all from home or find them elsewhere. 
Yeah, on. assuming you've got the, the mutual recognition of qualifications sorted out, um, presumably you can do that. Lots of expedient measures have been taken already in this country uh, as a result of the COVID crisis. Yeah, well, so, while you're you on know. the subject of Michael Gove, how, what kind of a week has he been having? A busy week, uh, a busy week and uh, up uh, before committees, uh, notably the Northern Ireland uh, Affairs Committee yesterday, uh, himself and Brandon uh, Lewis, where they were being questioned about the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol and the implementation of that. And as we mentioned earlier, yes, that was something that was done uh, that got people over the hump at the time, but now the implementation of it uh, is what people are watching. And so whilst Mr. Gove is saying uh, we have an absolute hard deadline, uh, we can't fudge anything, the, the new regime has to be in place uh, by the 1st of January, we're still in watch and wait mold. He's promising us uh, a detailed operational uh, instructions for how the new regime is going to work on the uh, GB Northern Ireland, well, we can't call it a border, but the uh, internal trade uh, controls and bureaucracy that will be associated with that uh, to meet the terms of the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, we're going to have to wait uh, for the details on that. He was uh, adamant that there wouldn't be any uh, paperwork for goods moving from Northern Ireland to uh, Great Britain, uh, but there would have to be some kind of uh, equivalence uh, to uh, what's that um, summary declaration form? That, uh, exit exit summary declarations and exit entry summary. summary yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He was reluctant to answer any questions confirming or denying well, was, that they would have I, to answer. To, they would have to have those forms, but he was suggesting yeah. that there would be some kind of an equivalent filing. Uh, well, there, there was, there was an extraordinary uh, there was an extraordinary exchange between himself and Hillary Benn, who, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, thanks to his work on the uh, on the EU's uh, the future relationship with the EU committee, another House of Commons committee. Hillary Benn has a, a fairly forensic grasp of the issues at the moment. And he was a dog with a bone, I thought, with uh, Michael Gove uh, and, and asking him. To, well, not very well, I thought. I mean, Michael Gove is fairly adept at, you know, uh, brushing aside uh, unpleasant questions in, in a way that makes him look very polite and reasonable. Um, but on this occasion, Hillary Benn was asking him directly, uh, is uh, our export health certificates going to be required? Uh, are we going to have to have uh, entry summary declarations? Are we going to have exit summary declarations? And uh, he, he set the question up, Michael Gove, on occasion didn't seem entirely sure and then he said well actually in the government's own impact assessment report of last october this is what it says and yeah. it says yes there will be exit summary declarations for goods leaving northern ireland going to great britain uh, and vice versa goods going from great britain to northern ireland um, and uh, michael gove was left foundering in uh, somewhat uh, and all he could say was, well, we, we'll have more guidance in the summer. Um, and he was not really answering the questions uh, that Hillary Benn was putting to him. Another thing, I don't know if you picked this up, Sean, as well, but uh, there, there's very clear, uh, a very clear strategic approach to the messaging now from the British government on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And that is everything has to be seen through the lens of the Good Friday Agreement, even though we've been through all that with the backstop and the impact of Brexit. Um, what they've done really is to shift the moral burden onto the European Union saying you wouldn't want to do anything that upsets the Good Friday Agreement 
And if one part of the community, namely the unionist community, feels any way put out by any of your bureaucracy or any of your unreasonable application of the rules, then that goes against the Good Friday Agreement. And Michael Gove even said at that committee meeting yesterday, you know, the EU wants to think about this. The EU claims that it was founded as a peace project on the ruins of the Second World War. Do they really want to have, you know, bothersome bureaucracy on Northern Ireland businesses in a way that might upset the unionist community uh, and therefore in a way that might upset the Good Friday Agreement. And he Michael was implying Gold, that no they... Fan, no fan of the Good Friday Agreement at the time. The well, I'm sure did, well, uh, he is a trenchant critic of it at the time it was published. And you're right, Tony, that he, he has been very strong and right across the, the, the British government, but particularly from Michael Gove, this idea of anything that goes through Northern Ireland must have cross-community support. And if one community doesn't like it, uh, then it ain't going to fly. And yes, it, it is... Uh, very much playing to the uh, unionist side uh, yeah. of the and, house on that he, one. Yeah, and he's been saying as well, uh, he uses this word uh, appropriate, uh, that the British government will implement the protocol in an appropriate way. And he, he went so far as to say that almost that the UK government would have, have license to implement the EU's rules, which it has signed up to through the pr protocol, uh, that the UK would have, would have a license to do it to do that implementation the way it feels is the appropriate way uh, and a way that will not offend uh, unionists. Now, I think, you know, the EU is going to get more and more irritated about that because uh, Michel Barnier has made it very clear that uh, entry and exit summary declarations will be required. Uh, it's basically what the Union Customs Code, the EU's rulebook says. It's applied everywhere else at the EU's yeah. uh, external borders. Yeah, and and you're right. The, the point that Gove was trying to make was that Britain will operate uh, the Union Custom Code, or rather it will operate something that is equivalent to the Union Custom Code, that Britain believes is equivalent to the Union Custom Code. So that the Northern Ireland, they're very clear on the point that it remains part of the UK customs territory. So any arrangements that um, operate within Northern Ireland will be British customs laws or VAT laws or any other laws, uh, and if they, the, the intention will be that they would coincide with what uh, the EU has in its Union Customs Code and wouldn't conflict with it and would meet the requirements of the Union Customs Code. But that is rather different to actually implementing the Union Customs Code within the custom territory of Northern Ireland. Right. Well, what can we expect in, in the week ahead? Because we are rapidly nearing July, Tony, and this deal mm. is highly unlikely to be cut in July. But what's the set what's the set piece moves we can expect in the next week? On the Brexit front, the next thing we're waiting for is another meeting of the specialized subcommittee. So that is the committee that deals specifically with implementing the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now it's due to meet in in uh, a reasonably short period of time, but we don't have a date for that. The Joint Committee, which is the overarching uh, kind of political committee, bringing Michael Gove and Maros uh, Shevkovich uh, together uh, to give the political direction of implementing the, the withdrawal agreement, that's not going to meet until September. Um, I mean, overall, to be fair to, to what the British government are doing, the signals you're getting from the EU are that they, they are doing a lot more on implementing the protocol. There is a lot more concrete detail on VAT, uh, on customs, uh, on uh, SPS, the phytosanitary and phytosanitary side of things. Uh, I think what we've been talking about in this podcast is really 
the political messaging that's coming out from from people like Michael Gove uh, and the government, uh, obviously directed uh, clearly at, at the unionist uh, population more than anybody else. Um, so uh, beyond that, on Brexit, uh, a lot more technical uh, meetings and video conferences, I'd say. Uh, on, on the EU level, we're, we're waiting to hear when there's going to be another big uh, face-to-face meeting in July to try and uh, crack the... Um, the, the recovery fund and the Euro, the seven-year uh, EU budget. Sean? Yeah, more technical work in uh, committees, which I have to say are, are cranking up uh, and doing a lot of work on digging into uh, either the Northern Ireland uh, specific aspects uh, or on the future relationship or in the, the good old House of Lords committee as well. Uh, they're still uh, churning out the work, all done on these uh, virtual sessions, uh, but the paperwork is starting to flow as well. Uh, and the the guest appearances, so a lot of uh, that kind of uh, technical work. Uh, but I suppose the uh, last highlight of the week is actually today, because how rude of us we forgot to mention right at the very top of the show. The most important thing of all today is Boris Johnson's birthday. There you go, nineteenth of June. Every year, I hope he's, he's fifty six. Fifty six today. Um, he'd be having cake, but a slimline cake. He was looking a little bit trimmer uh, there in the Commons on uh, on Wednesday. Uh, than he has been uh, for some time now. This new regime of jogging around Buckingham Palace Gardens uh, seems to be agreeing with him. Well, of course, here uh, in, in in Ireland, we'll be having the formation of a new government, or at least the basis of it being laid, and Brexit is featuring in the programme for government. There's mentions of it as a risk and obviously continuing to work and work on the ports and the like. But of course, over the course of the, the coming weeks, we'll no doubt be hearing the makeup of the new cabinet if indeed Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens ratify the programme for government and decide to jump in together. And we'll know who we are. Will Simon Coveney be staying in post? Will we? Will Helen McEntee still be continuing as Minister for Europe or will we have a new team? I think one one interesting point on that. Uh, just before we go, we should this will one this is this will be one to keep an eye on uh, whether Pascal Donoghue gets the post of President of the Eurogroup. Uh, that uh, post has come vacant. Uh, Mario Centeno of Portugal has stepped down, and uh, it's a bit awkward because. Pascal Donoghue has been tipped as one of three uh, candidates. The other two come from Spain and Luxembourg, and uh, but he has to be a sitting finance minister if he's going to get the job. Uh, and it's not really clear if that is going to happen on time because the deadline for nominations is the 25th of June. And it, it may be after that, if I'm not uh, mistaken, before we'll have a vote in the Doyle for the new government. Mm, I think it's the 29th or something, wasn't it, Colin? The, yeah. the, it, the, the timing certainly doesn't um, suit uh, Pascal Donoghue there. Um, but yeah, also uh, Michael Gove, we've mentioned him a lot. He did send congratulations to Tisha Collect, Micheál Martin. Um, right. during the, that committee meeting during the week, whether he's tempting fate or not, uh, who knows. Oh, and by the way, he also, um, uh, as part of his <laughs> maybe deflecting answers from people, uh, mentioned your good self, Tony, uh, in dispatches, quoting from one of your I think, articles. I think I'm, I'm damned forever. <laughs> there's, there's, no getting, there's no coming back from that one. <laughs> All right. Well, we should probably, by, by the time we get to next week's podcast, we should probably have a, a clearer idea of how things are looking uh, here we might have a run through the program for government and what's been emphasized on the brexit front because obviously it's scattered throughout it and fisheries horse racing and a lot of other areas but um we may have a look at it in next week's podcast but that's it for me anyway colin Mungo, deputy foreign editor normally in dublin but broadcasting from home in kildare and from me sean Whelan, uh, still here in london in sunny westminster 
And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.